Hi friends, welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis and we are coming to you today from Midtown Manhattan and the former legendary Skyline Studios. And uh, I'm really psyched to be sitting down with our Artist of the Month, one of the most creative musicians I think I've ever had the good fortune of working with, Mr. Michael Lenhart. Michael is, uh, has been a success very early on. He uh, won a Grammy Award at the ripe old age of 17 and at the time was the, the youngest Grammy winner in history. Uh, that same year, he was uh, featured on ABC's Person of the Week. Um, he is an in-demand musician and uh, trumpeter, arranger, film composer, uh, songwriter. He has uh, seven, eight, nine uh, albums to his credit as a solo artist. Uh, he has appeared on over 125 albums as a featured sideman. Uh, has been a member of Steely Dan's incredible band since 1996 was featured on their Grammy-winning uh, album, Two Against Nature. Uh, he produced Donald Fagan's fourth solo album, Sunken Condos, and he has performed and recorded with a, a veritable who's who of the music and entertainment world. Uh, legends like James Brown, Ringo Starr, Brian Eno, Paul Simon, Eric Clapton, Levon Helm, Yoko Ono, Michael McDonald, Henry Mancini, Bobby McFerrin, Wynton Marcellus, Bonnie Raitt, Lenny Kravitz, uh, feature on Mark Ronson's latest hit, Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars, and he is the leader of the uh, acclaimed and popular Michael Lenhart Orchestra. Without further ado, uh, Michael, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. It's My awesome pleasure. to spend My some time pleasure. with you. Um, Michael, as many of you may know, uh, is the son of a legendary musician, the great Jay Lenhart, an incredible bass player and singer. Michael, why don't we talk about uh, your, your memories as a, as a youngster and uh, growing up in New York City and being in such a musical household with your mom, your dad, and your sister, and yeah. what that was like and how that clearly formed an incredible foundation for you. Well, I didn't, I didn't pick up an instrument really until I was eight or nine. Oh, wow, okay. And I was uh, a very, my mother's described me as a very sensitive kid. I would say I had a lot of anxiety. You wouldn't see it on the outside, but my mind was always very active. Okay. In a way, kind of always arranging, always orchestrating, except uh, uh, it was just kind of nonstop. So I would draw. Drawing calmed me down. Sketching. I wasn't particularly great. I've seen some, but it was, it was cool, but it was very, it would just focus everything in. I do remember that I sang on some commercials, like jingles with my sister, just kind of la 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 la, because I could hold pitch, and, and mm -hmm. I don't remember doing it. It was just a thing. We went in. I don't think we got royalties. <laughs> no SAG contract no. at that point. <laughs> and I must have been five. My sister was eight. We did it for a year or so. And then I went back to drawing, a lot of sports. Music was all around, but it was my sister who was a musician who would sing. We went to a piano lesson once. My mother dragged me along because there wasn't another babysitter. And it was about five blocks away. And there was an Eastern European woman who was very strict with my sister. And she said, would you like to sit down at the piano? And I said, sure. And I sat down and I really liked the sound that came out when I put my fingers down. But she said, curve your fingers. And I went, oh, I'm out. <laughs> and this isn't, or I don't want so that was pressure. strike one. <laughs> then I decided to take violin at, at seven or eight. And again, I found some reason why I didn't like it. I had to stand up. 
and I had a good um, sound and pitch was there, I just didn't really enjoy doing it. Hmm. I just didn't like the monotony of it or having to stand up, or the, the structure, the strictness, so I stopped. Then I took some drums, I played drums, and Bobby Shankin, of all people, lived in my parents' building where I grew up, and he gave me some lessons. We just had the drum pad, but I remember going... And again, it wasn't with a little practice, it was uh, not too difficult. And I liked it a little bit. I sat at a kit once or twice, but kind of filtered away. I went back to drawing. And then, f at, for some reason, at ten and a half, I asked my dad, uh, I said, I want to play, I think I want to play saxophone. I said, okay. I said, but you know what, saxophone, and this is comical, I said, saxophone's going to be too loud, so I'll, I'll, how about trumpet? <laughs> Because I guess I had in my mind Miles. Okay. Because there's a lot, sure. I mean, a lot of vinyl sure. being played at home. So I had in my mind Miles, the, 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 the warm open sound and the mute, and that you could mute it. And my dad was great. He said, if, um, let's see, if you still want it next week, we'll go down to Manny's. So we went down to Manny's, and... We, he picked out, not a Bach, but a nice con, which I still have, has some holes in it, about 125 bucks. I, I got it, kind of understood how to make a f sound, and then in the car home, he said, every red light that we stop at, you can play. <laughs> so the horn was in my lap, and I played, and I had, I had a, a, a thing, I could make a sound right away. And the learn for some reason I loved the trumpet. Looking back, it's kind of insane because it's so hard. But right. I didn't see it that way for the mm -hmm. first couple months. Mm -hmm. And then I was in the band, and I could play. And that was so. So really, started when I was about ten and a half. Up until then, my dad was always practicing every morning. My my bed was adjacent to a wall, and the other side of that wall was the room he would practice in. So I would hear, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing, boom. And I would hear these intervals all day long as I was waking up, and I think they kind of went in there. And my mother was singing. She would listen to Quincy Mancini, Ella Fitzgerald, Blossom Deary, I guess some Ravel, some movie music, some Ennio Marconi. And it was just there. Mm. It was just in the house, you know. Wow, very so, cool. Did you grow yeah. up in, in Manhattan then? Yeah, right. Upper West Side. Oh, cool. Which was slightly different then in the 70s. But mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, you went to, I guess it, at that time it was music and art, but now it's known as uh, LaGuardia High School. Uh, it was LaGuardia then. It was, okay. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, LaGuardia High School is one of the, uh, one of the uh, finest uh, arts and music school, high schools uh, anywhere in the country, but here in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, I know you, uh, you really came into your own at that point, winning the Grammy and uh, getting all kinds of notoriety as a, as a young uh, high school musician. Well, e even before that, looking back, um, at 13, in eighth grade, Justin DeChocho, who uh, was the head of music there, and then went on to Manhattan School Music, I forget, oh, Somehow he heard me play in the end of seventh grade, and he said, I want you to audition for the jazz chair in All City Band. And I said, but I'm in eighth grade. He said, don't worry, we'll, we'll let you in. I said, okay. Now at this point, I had probably 11 or 12. I kind of plateaued in terms of endurance. 
I could play, mm. but it was that thing where I would now my 42-year-old self would say I had probably started developing some not bad habits, but habits. So I still had a, a C, but from one day to another, one day I could play great and play 32 bars. The next day after 16 bars, I was shot. Hmm. I kind of had a way of working around it, but, but it was, I was always aware of, okay, endurance might not be my strength. I went in and auditioned for Allstate, uh, All City Band. They gave me second trumpet at 13, which a lot of people were like, who is this little turd coming in? <laughs> but I could blow, and I mm -hmm. had a feel, and, and I always knew, as we all, as all brass players hopefully learn, you know a way to trick it out and get around it. Mm -hmm. On a good day, I could really blow 3264, but there was, in my mind, uh, there was an inconsistency. Nonetheless, I was playing second trumpet in all city band and, some, and something else, maybe all state. So then, <clears throat> Um, when I went to LaGuardia, I was already, uh, I knew all the guys. And I didn't really have to fight for the respect, but I was always the young one. It was, it was not always the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the band was just massive. And I have cassettes of it. It was either Greg Hutchinson on drums or Eric McPherson on drums, Walter Blanding on tenor, uh, Jason Lindner was on the piano, William Ash, Dan Friedman. It was just a, a this wow. crazy who's who. Mm -hmm. So uh, the level of the ensemble playing was pretty strong. The, the feel was great. The solos were great. There were nuances that weren't quite there. Uh, obviously, there was a kind of a, an alpha mentality of everyone in the section. So blend was the thing that had to be worked on. But Nonetheless, we played little uh, little Splanky and and um, and all these other uh, or Splanky and little Darlin and some crazy uh, charts, uh, some Harlem Airshaft uh -huh. things that looking back we shouldn't have been able to pull off and they were pretty good. Mm. So that was a, a real um, solidifying of this uh, groove ensemble playing. And Justin would always say, "You guys are rushing, just just keep it steady." So we'd get into. And that feeling went into my bones of just like, what is that? So way before any winning of awards, it was the constant uh, a, a chance to play with these people who, who were, in, some of them were incredible soloists. I mean, mm -hmm. Walter Blanding at this time, he was probably, if I was 13, he was probably 16. He would play some kind of Gonzalez stuff that would get the band, the band would be good, but he would get the band just smoking. Wow. And, and I knew it then that it was special, but looking back, it was really, it was quite incredible. Very cool. Yeah, yeah Justin DeChocho, uh, as many of you know, great, uh, one of the great jazz educators of all time, and, uh, and always had that knack for finding uh, incredible young talent, and uh, yeah. he's done a great service to jazz education. Before we move out of your younger period, how did you become ABC's Person of the Week? It's a that was tied into the Grammy, and it was luckily it just was so quick that I didn't have a chance to process it. I remember that uh, Peter Jennings didn't come over. He was the way they edited it. It looked like we were all there. Okay, um, or, but it was like. They said, oh, we're choosing him as person of the week. And I, I didn't know. I mean, I grew up in a household where there were famous people coming in as well as people who uh, were, you know, 
music legends, but totally broke. So there was this kind <laughs> of um, equal playing field, like a person of the week. Oh, okay, I mean, I, I really just wanted to be playing. Mm -hmm. So they came into the interview. Looking back, it makes my skin crawl to be honest. Like, well, you know, you gotta, you know, when you look at Autumn Leaf. I, I don't even know what I was. It was very endearing, but it just screamed mega nerd. Um, and, and that was it. Yeah, we did this interview. It was on TV for for a week or two. I was steadily recognized on the street, which wasn't. It was kind of weird, and then it went away. You know. <laughs> That's so, great. What, yeah. a, what a cool thing, though. Well, let's talk about your kind of early years as a professional. And, and we touched on it before the interview. Maybe you could talk about, you know, Alan Rubin's name came up. But uh, we could talk about, obviously, with your dad being such an important part of the New York jazz and studio scene, you had uh, all the guys knew you from day one, uh, yeah. without question. But maybe talk about some of your memories and, and thoughts about what it was like when you were a, a young professional and, and some of the influences and maybe a couple of, uh, you know, key gigs that came your way that maybe uh, stand out uh, in, the, in your early development as a professional. Yeah, I remember playing um, at the Blue Note Sundays with my dad. He had the group down there, right. and he would invite me. And there was a, a little bit of nepotism, but, um, but I could hang. I mean, I was mm -hmm. 13 or 14. I mean, what a great experience to be able to play a 50 to 70 minute set. Now, I wasn't playing heads, so from a technical standpoint, I didn't have to play the head and then blow. Um, uh, we do one, I'd play one head at the beginning of the set, my dad would come up and sing, but we, we, there would be extended blowing on each uh, song, and the set would have about 10, 11 songs. And it was a great chance to understand in front of a paying audience that is not going to accept something kind of subpar mm -hmm. how to get your stuff together. And that was one thing where five or six songs in and Marvin Stan would do it, Randy Brecker would come in, um, Grady Tate was playing. It was a sick band. Killer band, yeah. And it was just a great chance to, to get out of the practice room and apply um, what you need to do to be creative uh, functionally, and to learn by, uh, you know, by mistake. The last song in the set being a, a, a very fast rhythm changes in, in G. And just trying to, un uh, playing in, 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 my, in our A wasn't a problem, but this was starting to fall apart at 13 and a half and having to blow three choruses. That's a lonely feeling. <laughs> and having to BS your way instead of being all, beep, boop, beep, ba -da -ba -da -ba -da, to have to go, ba -da -ba <laughs> That's a sad feeling. So I remember coming out going, I really don't want, I want to be able to go. And the only way to do that is to then go back in and work on the fundamentals. So I had this arc of having some great gigs and, and knowing, you know, with humility, knowing that I had an advanced uh, aptitude towards harmony and counterpoint, but the technical aspect of the of the trumpet was something that was not natural for me. There would mm. be great days, and there would be drifting days, as many people deal with, and um, and never it was never obvious to anyone but me. But I knew that something could be easier. And one f incredible thing was. I was about maybe 15 or 16, I said to my dad, I said, it's too hard because I would uh, practice 10 or 15 minutes, 
fundamentals. I studied with a student of Vince Pensarella, a great guy named Jim Hamlin. And then I'd rest and go to the piano, and I would play, usually just make stuff up, or I would look at Ravel scores, Stravinsky, whatever, listen to albums. And it wouldn't be 15 minutes at the piano because there wasn't uh, a diminishing returns of, uh, of muscle. It would be an hour and go, oh, I got to go back. And then I'd practice 10 minutes on trumpet, tire out, and go sit at the piano. And I started seeing what was happening. I was playing different instruments. It's, it was nice to break it up, but I was doing 15 minutes on trumpet, an hour at the piano, mm, 10 minutes on trumpet, an hour and a half on piano, five more. So at some point, um, the, the issue of endurance on trumpet was really frustrating to me at 15. I said to my dad, maybe this isn't, maybe it's just too hard. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. This is, it's difficult. And he was active in the studio scene. He said, you know, the person who has the most effortless te technique that I know of is Alan Rubin. Now, Alan could be quite a character. <laughs> and I knew him in passing, and he was a real advocate of mine. And so he came over one day, and he said, okay, let me play for me. I've heard you play, but let's play one-on-one. -on -one. And, and I said, you know, am I doing something wrong? Or, I mean, you know, what's... Here's, he said, play through the horn. And he said, You're, it's, all, it's all right, just keep going. You're not doing anything wrong. Yeah, it's all good. Just keep mm -hmm. on going. It's a, it's a struggle and it'll get easier. And that was a real affirmation that there wasn't something off to the side or something down or this or bad habits. Um, and it was incredibly powerful because I was on the brink of going, you know, F it, I'll just play piano or I'll do something else. Because in my, what I heard in my head, I couldn't always catch up to. I don't know if any of us can, but it was at such, there was such a discrepancy sometimes that I was getting frustrated. I kept on going. Um, part of developing, as I've told younger students, when, when your physiology is developing, there are certain things that just naturally become easier. Larger lungs, your teeth start to develop, you know your body, you, whatever. Um, I had the chance to study with Chris Gecker, who just being around his sound was an inspiration. Sure. Yeah. He also had this incredible approach. He was one of the few people, everyone had said, oh, it's all about air. It's all about air. And I would say, okay, what do you mean? And Chris said, it's not, it's not only about air, which was a chance, it, it, it freed me up a little bit. Um, Looking back now, I understand what, what people mean by it's all about air, but, but it, it can't just be simplified. It's the, the, the use of air is the engine, but you also need to have the an understanding of what you're doing, airspeed, tongue position, embouchure, all these things. So Absolutely. just to yeah. go air, it's, it's like saying if you want to play basketball, just be tall. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> so there were, these key, there were these key moments, the thing with Alan, Really freed me up to know. Okay, I'm not this. I'm not on the wrong path. Just keep, just be patient and keep working on it. Mm -hmm. There were other moments of, uh, I mean, shit. I was probably 15 or 16. I went to the IHJE International Association mm -hmm. of Jazz Educators Conference in New Orleans. I had won some award or whatever. I was playing. With, in the band was Chris Dave on drums and Ethan Iverson on piano, mm. who is now part of the Bad Plus. Mm -hmm. 
And I had a sense that I was around great players, but looking back, it's comical just how we all were brought together. And Ethan, because he had such a Cecil Taylor um, vibe going on, he was a sore thumb in that. Uh, you know, Rufus Reed wanted us to sound like the messengers. And I could, again, BS a little Lee Morgan thing, but it wasn't exactly the way I was wired. And Ethan certainly couldn't couldn't do Bobby Timmons. Mm -hmm. So when we talked about it in recent years, it was it was like fitting a square into a circle. Mm. On the way home from New Orleans, I will never forget sitting for the. I wanted the plane ride to last forever. It was. I think we had a, a business class ticket. It was Lou Soloff, myself, and Clark Terry. Oh wow! And Great. Clark, while I didn't spend tons of time with him, whenever I saw him, he was just the warmest guy. And if I have a trumpet idol, it's probably Clark Terry. Mm -hmm. Just uh, you know, well known, but still in my mind underrated. Just if I ever uh, Clifford Brown, of course Louis Armstrong, and Clark. If if I ever need a to light the fire of wanting to practice, of what I'm trying to achieve, you put on Clark Terry, it is just mind-numbingly beautiful. And that plane ride, um, Lou was going off about mouthpieces and dentures and, and people <laughs> you know, wanting to take a, an impression of his teeth, and Clark was just kind of smiling going, eh, young kid. Not to me, to, to Lou. Uh, but it was so wonderful. And just to hear all this experience, you know. And that was, even though we didn't, I, mean, I played with Clark a little bit here and there. Um, but to, just to be around him and his approach, his humor, his wisdom, yeah. that was, that was incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Great stories. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to talk to, you know, our viewers about, but... You know your incredible musicianship. Uh, I think is one of the one of your your fortes, and that the, the fact that your ears were so developed so early, and that you took to the piano and other instruments, and and that's something like to me. You're like the prototypical young. I mean, you're young to me, and well, thank you. you. <laughs> Still a very young man, and and but you're like a prototype of of what it takes now to be to survive in this world. It can't just be what. The Lou Soloffs and the Alan Rubens, as great as they were, I think that I think it's gone wider than that now. And the fact that you had those skills and and were took to that so naturally, I think, is probably, um, you know, been been very helpful in in guiding your career and and the development of all the the things you've done as a as a complete musician. You know, not not to say that the no, challenges aren't there as a no. brass player, but but it's. I, th I think it's worth uh, noting that having those other skills are incredibly helpful in, in today's uh, you know music world, to my estimation. Uh, it's 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 a very interesting statement because on the one hand, yes, there are multiple. If we're just talking about surviving and having opportunities, and in my case, I have a family that I want to help support, so making a living, to be an arranger. Uh, Player, producer, orchestrator, songwriter means that there are multiple ways of earning a living and, and when, when the business is shifting, and, and conductor, that if someone wanted me to lead a group, um, I can do that as well. It's mm -hmm. beneficial, and yet there is a point where it's schizophrenic, and you have to ask, are you doing any one of them at the level that you want? The, my the constant life struggle is, am I at the level as a horn player that I want to be. 
because I don't spend all that time each day doing the fundamentals that now, as a, as a guy in his 40s, I know more how I would want to play the horn, what I'd want to do. We were talking about it before. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that based on my teeth, my body, my shape, I, I am a better practicer, but I have less time to do it. So I struggle with, if I had to play a Broadway show or if I had to play you know, a, like a soft kind of lead trumpet uh, gig, um, am I in tip-top shape? Mm -hmm. I don't spend every morning, every day doing the fundamentals. I will hit the horn. But on the one hand, I have found a way to make a living and be active, but I have to keep a careful watch on am I spreading myself too thin and, and doing everything in a level that's far beyond where I want to be. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. And I also went through this period... Um, I had my own sort of rebellion. This, it's easy to go on a tangent with this, but after playing with Steely Dan, at, at the first tour was 22. And I think we didn't start recording Two Against Nature till two years after. This was back in the day when there were huge budgets and they spent a year and a half on demos and rhythm section. So after that tour, I had made some nice money, especially for a 22-year-old. And it wasn't, it was partially arrogance, but more so like, wow, this is okay, so I can, things are starting to cook. And at the time, I loved Nirvana and Jimi Hendrix and, uh, and you know, Verez and Stravinsky. And I thought, let me just, I'm going to plug in an electric guitar through an old fuzz pedal and just create some stuff. And I wouldn't practice trumpet as much. I thought, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll come back to it. And I was veering off in a path away from the horn on the one hand, you could say I was studying, um, you know, music concrete and Stravinsky. And uh, on the other hand, people say, "What are you doing?" My parents said, "What are you doing?" I, mm. we, you know, I heard some of the new music you're writing. It's really weird, <laughs> and it wasn't always so cool. Mm. Like it, I mm. felt like I was alone. Um, and when I got into tape loops, and when I got into uh, strange hip hop, or when I, you know, I was always ravenous for different kinds of music and when I would come back and it, it, it I was never lost for who I was I, I would hear kind of blue and love it I would hear Clifford Brown love it I was just spreading out and at times I heard from people like I uh, Michael has gone away from this he's doing that and there people would say you should come back and just do the one thing better and I kept on following my um, gut Checking in, was I going, you know, was I growing a beard down to here and alienating everything <laughs> I had? But I was expanding, and I went through a period where um, it wasn't so cool. You wouldn't look and go, oh, that's great. Now, I happened to come out of it uh, no, being very familiar with how to get certain sounds uh, on a fuzz guitar and how to manipulate tape loops and, and have these different colors. But it required a period of... of uh, like feeling alone, mm. that the mm -hmm. world was going, oh, he's lost, man. He did one Steely Dan tour, now he's just playing fuzz guitar. I came back and added it to the palette and, and, and actually did a session once with John Barry um, where I said to them, they said, we want you to do a trumpet solo in the style of Chet Baker. And I said, is it, I knew I wasn't in good shape. I said, is it, uh, how hard is it? They said, oh, it's easy. Now, for the record, if anyone in 
Broadway or L.A. says it's easy, you have to assume that it's going to be the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> of course. So it's like... It's nothing Chet would have ever played. Right. And I, I was like, can we... You know, we could we could break this down into phrases. I'm like, oh, glue it, put it later, splice it. And I saw the writing on the wall. And eventually, I mean, it was the one session that I got out and out fired from. Mm. It was John, John Barry was in the booth, and and it was like I probably it, it was bad. <laughs> and but I said to him, I knew it. And I said, you know what? There are, are there are like seven trumpet players in the zip code that could come in and nail the song. Just, why don't we just call this a, a wash? What, what was happening is that I was 23 and hadn't been playing. I was yeah. like just playing, you know. So I think I went on a small tangent. But on the one, my answer would be, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's been smart to, to do multiple things. And yet you can't expect to do everything mm. well. Uh, I'm not as good... Uh, a trumpet player when I'm busy writing songs. I'm certainly not as good a lyricist when I'm focused on the horn. And that's, that's okay. You know, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a statement, that's, um, I forget who, who said it, but someone said, you know, human beings are capable of doing one thing at a time really well, two things possibly well if you are, have a high aptitude, and maybe three things if you're at the level of a rare genius. But for the most part, humans are capable of doing like one th thing mm. well at a time. So mm -hmm. this idea of multitasking, and certainly with your career, there should be a lot of um, uh, mindfulness because you can uh, doing too much is not good. Yes, finding the my, my biggest suggestion or recommendation would be to, in this day and age, to find a way if you are going to survive as a musician, to make what's called mailbox money. <laughs> have some sort of back end because if you have to be in the room to make money you're immediately closing off the amount of money you can make mm -hmm. and that's fine but you will have a finite amount of money if you get involved in royalties which is difficult with the record label being what it is or songwriting or composing or scoring where you can write something and have it be bringing income as you're off doing other things that's the biggest secret mm -hmm. you know easier said than done but if you don't start early it's never going to happen right well thanks for sharing all that that's some awesome stories and uh, and and well said too about trying to find that 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 balance um maybe we could shift gears a little bit you, you mentioned them obviously you're well known for being with steely dan for for many many years now over 20 years uh one of my favorite bands i think uh, for for many of us it's yeah. uh, modern day mozart it's just like yeah. the timeless incredible music and uh just talk to us maybe, I mean, we could do an entire interview just yeah. on uh, your, your years with Steely Dan, but uh, obviously Donald and Walter are amazing, but the band itself, the horn section, the great Jim Pugh, mm -hmm. Roger Rosenberg, Walt, Walt Weisskopf, amazing musicians in every chair, John Harrington. Maybe just your memories, favorite thoughts you've had, uh, experiences. Um, they've clearly toured a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Kent and I were talking before. It was interesting. For so many years, they were, were not really interested in touring so much, and now uh, they're a touring machine. So. That's right. We're going to be in Vegas. We're doing a residency uh, yeah. in Vegas in April, which that. is yeah. 
Hard to believe. Hard to believe, but, <laughs> man, that's but awesome. Anyway, in, in your court, uh, what, what's what's it been like uh, for two decades uh, working with this incredible band? Well, I came. I heard a lot of Steely Dan actually growing up because my dad loved the group. I was. I wouldn't say indifferent. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was part of the, the pop music. There was a lot of James Brown, uh, Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers. Uh, my dad definitely loved Joni Mitchell. So it was on. It wasn't the only thing, but my dad was a huge fan. Mm. And <clears throat> when I heard, uh, just by the timing of it, Asia kind of blew my mind. But the Nightfly, I remember that would be... I was playing by then, and I just thought the, the, the voice, the, his voice, the lyrics... Uh, the horns on Maxine, the Brecker solo on Maxine, it was, I knew that this was something very special. And then I kind of went on and stepped away from Steely Dan. And, and then I was in Washington with Chris uh, Potter in 92 or 93. He and I were playing together for some, we both had were something jazz scholars in the arts. They brought us together to play in Washington before cell phones. and. We had rooms down the hall from another. We said, let's meet uh, before a sound check. We'll go out to lunch. I said, great. So we split up. Two hours later, he came down. He said, I just got the strangest call in Brooklyn. On my, answer. my girlfriend said, Steely Dan called, that they're putting the band back together. Would I play? And I said, oh, cool. He wound up doing it for uh, the next year. It was like three saxophones um, for the Alive in America tour. And then two, two years, two or three years later, my sister knew a great guy named Scott Barkham, who was a studio manager at River Sound. Um, I had been playing quite a bit. I was probably 20 or 21 then. And the playing word of mouth was around that, you know, um, I was doing a lot of different stuff, and I knew some people in that universe. I knew Chris Potter. And my sister said, they're, there's, they're looking for new singers and a trumpet player for Steely Dan. Do you want to audition? I said, sure, why not? Chris did it. could be cool. And it wasn't an audition. I, sent, I had released a solo album called Aardvark Poses on Sunnyside Records that was pretty abstract. It was trumpet, tenor, bass, and drums in the Ornette style. Mm, okay. uh, also in the Chet uh, Baker, Jerry Mulligan style. And um, there was some Rasan Roland Kirk type things, Charles Mingus, very adventurous. Um, and I said, well, I'll send that in. And I was, I was young. I was like, well, that's cool. That's, that's what I sound like. Cool. Looking back, and I did know, it, it's, I still can't imagine what they heard. I can <laughs> and I can't. Because <clears throat> there are notes when I go to hit an A and I overshoot it, so it's not like I'm Chuck Finley. Um, there's a great feel. I, my son, who's now seven and a half, actually listens to it a lot. So I am reliving the album, and it's fine. But I hear there's some things that I could do at 21 that I wouldn't necessarily do now. These wide intervals, which I remember practicing. I was fascinated by Eric Dolphy. And I got into practicing uh, sevenths and ninths and all these extended things. So I, there was a crazy accuracy. Anyway, they, heard, they said, oh, they like it. They'll get back took two or three months. A month later, I called and said, any, any news? They said, um, they really like it. They're just checking some things out. About six or seven months after the initial call, they said, um, uh, Michael, they'd like to hire you for a nine-month tour. Uh, 
and they're interested in the tenor player on your album. So in the end, they hired me and Ari Ambrose, who was a tenor player. And I think that they loved the feel and the hookup, the sound. There was a little mm. bit of a Miles and Wayne thing. I mm -hmm. mean, that's a very arrogant statement, but there was this, uh, <laughs> there was a, a gelling, a kind of, there would be notes together that would be, uh, ring and then they would find their place and be a really nice uh, new sound. So we did uh, the tour and, and I was also deep into Bitches Brew at that time, so I remember bringing a wah pedal on tour and I would have a separate dynamic mic that ran into it. I said, yeah, you, if we can just run it with an uh, XLR adapter in, uh, to quarter inch into the wah and I'll play wah on the solo. Now, how I had the balls to say that, <laughs> I don't know, but I did. <laughs> and they went, yeah, that's cool. So on Home at Last, um, after I would go wah, 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 and I would play a wah trumpet solo. <laughs> and I assumed, I wasn't trying to get fired, but I assumed I would get fired, so why not have fun? Go out now. Go out like a flying, like flying bird. Around. And I think they, um, the tour was very good. Uh, I had enough experience to be able to um, hone in and get, you know, understand what they wanted pitch-wise. Again, I wasn't Chuck Finley, so I've heard some live recordings and I go, oh, I wish I had a rounder sound, I wish my E was not flat, but it was cool. Mm. And they asked, uh, oh, then they started doing the album and then um, I spoke with Don and, he, and he, he asked me to arrange, he knew I was arranging a lot, they'd heard me play piano. And I wound up arranging, conducting, and playing horns on Two Against Nature, and our relationship just kind of blossomed. And oddly enough, my sister and myself, she was 25 at the time, I was 22, were now the, the ones from that original band who have been with them the longest. Hmm. And I think part of it was that uh, I had, I wouldn't call it arrogance, I would just call it this kind of dreaminess that I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't think about insecurity, I just kind of went, eh, I know what I can't do and I know what I can do, that it, it, I didn't stranglehold the relationship. I wasn't trying to control it or impress. I wasn't uh, saying, was it good enough? Here's what, I wasn't like a people pleaser. I was there, I was trying to do the job and it worked with them. And I've grown and learned how to, you know, I've changed equipment over the years. I, um, at, at one point I had a Martin Committee I think I played, which I would never do again because it's as gorgeous a horn as it is, it's just not, it, it's not fair to the section to play that kind of horn. Mm, right. Um, and at the, the, right now I have a Yamaha Xenon, which I think is a Wayne Bergeron model, which to me, um, it, it doesn't have quite the same thing as an older horn, but if it's out of tune, I know it's me. Mm. Okay. And that's a real nice thing to know that this is like a, a, a clean slate that's even. And as a result, it helps the, the section ring more. So, so as the gig has gone on, I've, I've learned more. I've also learned how to, to pace my, myself, mm -hmm. which um, was never a conscious decision, but a couple horn players have come to me and said, man, the show is like two hours and 15 minutes long. I said, yeah, I know. Um, you just have to, even Tony Cadillac, who is the guy who's the main sub for me who I've had to miss, uh, who was one of the 
fiercest trumpet players in the world. I said, that's, sure. a, that's a demanding show. And I said, you know, you, you just learn to, to pace yourself. Mm -hmm. um, there are little tricks. As the arranger, I had the luxury of having been able to say, we're not going to play those four bars because I know it just burns us out. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet there are other things where uh, certain songs that there is no way around it. You have to go from playing this low, warm, on trumpet, something that feels like flugelhorn and has that kind of warmth, to going up and hitting the high notes, to going back to a flugel section, to going to blowing with a plunger, like, you know, Clark or whatever, and then wrapping it up with this beautifully in-tune, close-miked flugel thing. And there's no way of cheating that, so you have to be set in a certain way. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could go on and on about the experience with them. It's, um, in the end, it's great music. It's fun. It's, there are moments of terror for us all, everyone including Donald Walter. Um, but for the most part, it's a relaxing, beautiful family at this point, you know, that gets a chance to play great music each night. So. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you think, um, I, we talked about it before the interview, but they've, uh, you know, there was a lot of volatility in terms of hiring and firing in their in their 70s, especially when they were recording. And um, it seems very stable. They've obviously found the musicians that they love to work with yourself, obviously. Um, do you think that's part of why they're touring so frequently now? Or it's interesting that they, uh, they are really out there playing. So it seems like every year there's a, a tour happening, which is great for the fans and, and for all of us who love to, to see the band. Yeah, there are multiple answers. Uh, to break it down, the, I would never say that they have stopped their tendency to firing because by the time you edit this, I could be fired. <laughs> that's just that's reality. Uh, are they? I think you know, with age comes wisdom, and I think they were. It was a different world. They were much younger. Um, one thing that I find fascinating, especially for Donald, who has to sing the lyrics, is that. I don't know if the audience understands that in many ways Donald singing songs from something like Countdown to Ecstasy or Can't Buy a Thrill, they're the early, early Steely Dan mm -hmm. albums, to, to be the narrator and the first person singing those songs that he wrote when he was in his 20s is sometimes the same as us opening up a shoebox and finding a love letter you wrote to someone when you were 14 and go, oh my <laughs> God, is that... <laughs> It's, it's not, I mean, <laughs> yes, the world loves these songs. It's not always uh, easy to look at your younger self in the warts and all. Yes, we had less wrinkles, but there are things that you wouldn't say in quite the same way. Um, I think they were in a different place in their lives. They wanted, um, they had the, the world at their fingertips in a way and had mm -hmm. access to the greatest musicians on the planet. It was like an aligning of the stars that they were writing this music, they were confident, they were either in L.A. or New York and had, could choose, now that person, you know what? That guy's great, but we want Purdy. Purdy's great. Purdy's good for that drum, but you know what? We'll get Jim Keltner. You know what? We don't want that guy. They could do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you get older, your expectations become a little more reality-based, I think. I think that's part of it. Uh, I'm sure that is also, and they'd probably say, this is an element of... of you know, maybe not laziness isn't the word, but they know what they have, it works. What are they going to do? I mean, the, the reality of going out and firing an entire band, that's part of the, now right. in terms of doing shows, um, I love that you love that we're doing shows. <laughs> part of it is that the record sales are... Yeah. So if you want to afford a certain lifestyle, 
the, the only money that's really out there is either uh, sync for movies and TV commercials or performing live, and they've been very um, um, difficult about approving syncs, which I respect. They could make a lot more money if they licensed all their songs. I think that uh, that show, that 70s show, mm -hmm. I think it's public knowledge that that was supposed to be called Reeling in the Years. And there was talk of something like doing a re-record, and they said, nah, forget it. They could have made a lot of money from that. They chose not to want to do that. Mm -hmm. They now have a band that they love playing with. Um, we do work well together. I mean, one of my favorite stories is going into Coachella a couple of years ago, uh, the festival that's predominantly a younger crowd. And people went, oh, man, now that when Steely Dan is, is booked, you know, it's the death of the festival. <laughs> and it was a real underdog kind of thing going in. And a lot of people said, who are these old white guys? And we went in and did, when I saw the set list, I went, holy, that's a killer set list. It was just hit, 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 dun, 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 done. And we went in and I think it was, I looked to the left, because it's so near LA, and I looked to the stage left on this, uh, like a riser, as we're playing it, and it was, like Paul McCartney was there, Clint Eastwood was there, and Ringo Starr and Barbara Bach were there, and everyone was just hovering. It was a 60-minute set. It just went Poosh! And whether you liked the music or not, you couldn't deny that it was so well created, and because it had in its, in its, as its anchor rhythm and blues. It was mostly right. the songs of uh, Asia and, and earlier things. The lyrics were incredible. The melodies are incredible. The groove is so powerful. There's such a wall of sound, and it didn't stop for 60 minutes, and I went, damn, that is a good band. Mm. Even if you don't like Yacht Rock, even if you don't like Steely Dan, you couldn't deny that this was like a wall of sound coming at you, and I was so proud, you know? Very cool. And that only happens when you have a band. We went in, there was no doubt, we just kept going, <laughs> so yeah. it's cool. Very cool. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your, your becoming uh, quite prolific as a film composer and doing a lot of work in that medium. You mentioned you know, music getting used in that, uh, um, in that realm. What, um, where do you see yourself going in that, uh, and, and, and how has that been for you in terms of the evolution of your, your career from the writing standpoint, and in, and in particular writing for film and, uh, and television? And, and also you can talk about it from an arranging standpoint as well, because clearly you... You, you, you do both. Yeah, they're very different. Being an arranger for film is a lot less pressure. You're, you have the filter of working. If I'm arranging, then I'm working with uh, the composer is answering to the director and the music studio. Uh, I don't have as much say, but it's not an, as much stress. Um, being a composer on a film, whether it's an indie film or a large film, I've always loved it. And there's uh, the fantasy of the stuff that I grew up with, Mancini, Quincy, Elmer Bernstein, uh, you know, Bernard Herrmann, uh, everyone, and what they did. And there's a reality of what they had to go through to do it. So it's, you, you know, you learn about the fantasy and the reality. The scoring films is an art unto itself, and there are many different categories and cliques or different subsets. Uh, Dick Hyman, who I, uh, I would 
call a friend and I have the utmost respect for, has done some fascinating stuff with Woody Allen. It's not quite mm -hmm. scoring, it's more adapting. I think he wrote some, some things, but Woody Allen really doesn't, doesn't use a, a film composed in the typical sense, right. but he has this gorgeous, have this gorgeous relationship with Dick Hyman. Carter Burwell with the Coen brothers has a beautiful, that's mm -hmm. a really, to me, a very coveted position. And I once met um, the Coen brothers and, and I remember wanting to try and uh, like say I would do anything to score a movie yet of yours, but I knew that they had, they were basically married to Carter Burwell and it's a great relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's the ideal situation for me, which is very rare. Um, you had that in some, you know, Sidney Lumet and Quincy Jones had a beautiful bond, but it's, uh, as any industry that involves millions of dollars, there are a lot of different things at play at any given time. So you have to, it teaches you to be extremely patient because um, a wise person once said to me, if you're, when you're composing music for film, it's like you're a painter and you're painting someone else's house. You're not painting <laughs> the gorgeous thing for you. You're using your paintbrushes to paint their house. So you're telling else's, someone else's story. And if you go into it with this kind of you know, impetuous thing, it, it ain't going to work very long. That doesn't mean you have to stuff your own identity down, but you have to understand what it is you're doing. Um, it's also a tough, uh, the payoff is great. The, the seeing music set to these images, to a story, is like nothing else. And the dues that you have to pay, uh, music is often the last element added to a film. Mm -hmm. And you can be putting yourself in the crosshairs for an entire um, studio to go, oh, you messed it up. If you're handed something that was broken, how do you fix it? You can make it a little better but it's the last element in the movie. It's the last chance for a director to try and salvage what they think has been altered in their vision. Most times a director has had to make many, many compromises along the way. And when music comes in, they think, oh, now I can finally get what I want. Um, all that being said, when you are able to add themes, melodies, textures, orchestrations to an incredible movie and bring it to life. There's nothing better. So it's, it's a real art. And especially now, um, there's so many pop musicians and jazz musicians who go, oh, I'll just score music uh, for films. You know, Gil Evans, I think, had a, had a very contentious relationship with film. It wasn't um, he, he the color of money and, and some other stuff. It wasn't. I don't know if it was right for him. Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Fagan, at, when we did Sunken Condos, there were a couple of requests because we were doing press and someone said, oh, would you score our film? And I said, you know, this, uh, this director asked if we would do something. He goes, nope, because it's not for <laughs> me. Because I'm not built for it. He, he knew. He just, yeah. nope. Wow. He said, I can't. No, I'm not good at that. He, he really doesn't want to have to sit in a room and watch a film over and over. He, he, it's, it's not, it's, yeah. it's not for him. And I respected that. You can't change that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I love the analogy of painting someone's house. It's like somebody else's vision. And like you said, you can add your imprint, but it's still at the end of the day, you're yeah. not necessarily your artistic statement. But uh, Yeah, and I have but, this blue over here. I, it's going to look great. And you go, I don't want blue. And I go, but I, 
<laughs> I'm going to save the blue for another movie. And, that, and, and there's, again, diplomacy, something which seems to be a, a dying art these days. It doesn't mean you have to suck it up. You just have to be able to listen and compromise and pick your battles. There have been some things that I worked on where I said, you know, I, I can rewrite scene 41. I think it's really the right direction. I, can, you, can you listen to it one more time? Mm-hmm. And I push back a little bit, and sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. And it's also a business. I have a, a writing partner, Annie Bush, who's a gorgeous trumpet, uh, trumpet player from England, and he and I have uh, BNL, Bush and Lenhart. Mm-hmm. We can score things individually or collectively, uh, but he's an old friend, and, it's, and we've been doing this for seven years. And the seeds that you have to plant, and I mean, some movies take 10 to 12 years to be made, it is like watching paint dry. Mm. So if you think it's going to be an overnight process, it's, it's not. It takes a while. And that's uh, it's fascinating, but so you, you really have to have the long game in mind because it takes five, ten years to, to of plugging away calmly to make a dent. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. So. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your solo career uh, as a solo artist. Um, you mentioned how your first record, the helped you immensely in uh, landing you the Steely Dan gig, but uh, you've released many records since there. I was particularly interested in the, the Michael Lenhart Orchestra, which is getting a lot of buzz around town, and, yeah. uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, checking you guys out in April. But maybe just talk about the evolution of your, uh, your career as a solo artist and, 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 and touching on, on, on your orchestra. The, uh, I did the first time Aardvark Poses, was I was 22 or something, 21 or 22, and when when I hear it, as I said, my son listens to it. My wife Jamie, who has tremendous ears, oddly enough, she was always like, "I like that album a lot." <laughs> like okay, and the other, she's like, "Yeah, they're all cool. I like I like Aardvark poses a lot." Now it's very abstract in many ways, <laughs> very angular, and I, I kind of understand it's. Um, in many ways, it's the most distilled statement that that I made. It wasn't incredibly ambitious. It was just it was very. There are no chords on it, really. All the chords are made up from from bass doing double stops, and these close voicings. At the time, Black Codes from the Underground, Winton Marsalis's mm-hmm. album was very mm-hmm. hip. Mm-hmm. I still love it, but it was it was. Uh, there were some things that he did with Bradford where um, that hadn't really been done in that way uh, they'd been hinted at but there was a there was a this device of him having um minor seconds and seconds trumpet and tenor and sometimes the tenor would i think be on top and it was a really cool sound and uh, mm. i think it was kenny kirkland um would double in the piano mm. and so i had these uh, without doing it consciously i wrote the tenor that way so i'd have the tenor and trumpet in seconds and the bass doing like a tenth and you could create a chord that way Point is, it was it, that was actually a very strong album, and then the second one that I did, Glove Glove Volume Eleven. If I if I can speak honestly, I think um, it was uh, everything was wild. I I just come back from the Steely Dan tour, and it was like a little bit of a bitches brew thing. I played twenty instruments on it. Um, it's not like I was blowing on it, but I was just mm-hmm. painting. And when I listen to it now, it's a, it's a tiny bit dated. Whereas the first album isn't, uh, because mm. it's dealing with more timbral instruments, mm-hmm. uh, there's no trickery, very minimal reverb. The first album hasn't 
hasn't gone dated. The second one, I'm not saying there's a DX7, but it's <laughs> putting my foot into the world of pop music and groove. And by doing that, it was, it's, it's wonderful. I can, feel the, I can feel a young guy trying to do stuff, trying to be a pop musician. The third album, Slow, um, is myself and John Harrington. All uh, kind of ballads and Brazilian things, and I sang on a couple things, and that's I really like that album too. Um, the singing, I think I've always been fasting with singing. I don't consider myself a particularly strong singer. I'm a nice singer, but in the style of someone um, who's just kind of like a singer-song or any person who it's more about the lyric, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm. That was me, I sang on two or three things there, not in a particularly strong voice, but it's kind of charming. And then from there, I did three albums kind of self-released, two albums self-released, uh, where almost like Radiohead or Elliot Smith, with, if there was trumpet on it, it was part of a section. There's almost mm -hmm. no trumpet. Okay. And it was just me uh, releasing stuff, and I had bands that did that live. Looking back, it was uh, if, if I liken my career to sort of painting, it's like just going switching styles. I never, there were a lot of people that loved it. I, I wonder if I'm not a strong enough singer to really carry, um, be a leader as a singer. The songwriting is cool. Uh, I don't mind hearing my voice sing and I enjoyed it. You know, is that, would I come back and release uh, albums where I'm singing everything? Don't know. So then I did Seahorse and the Storyteller, which was an album for Truth and Soul, uh, which was really tied out of my connections with the guys from the Dab Kings and, and the Brooklyn crew from Sharon Jones and Dab Kings and, and Mark Ronson and the Amy Winehouse guys. Great, great soul musicians. And this was almost African psychedelic rock and funk, Fela Kuti. And we did a lot of shows with that band. Again, I was up front singing and playing trumpet and every now and then. Oh, there's one, there's one other one. Um, before I did Sears from the Storyteller, I did an album called Hotel Music, which is a really weird album, but I, I love that one, um, where a label asked if I would do a, an ambitious album that was slightly off the, the path for me. And the, the idea we release it on vinyl with 200 hand-painted covers. This is before I had a kid and I had free time. <laughs> I didn't have to paint the covers. But, <laughs> okay, good. So good. I recorded during a Steely Dan tour in 2007. I recorded all this stuff in hotels, and I would take samplers and I would record water. I record casino and and then pitch shift it down and reverse it. I kind of Brian Eno, uh, David Byrne. And I would add some horns, again, no solos, but I would add little horns on sheep mics in the hotel room, and I would layer vocals. And it was very cinematic, in a way. Yeah. And um, it's, a cool, it's a cool, very druggy kind of psychedelic album. After that, I did Seahorse and the Storyteller. And that was 2009, 2010, so I, I've always recorded things, but I, uh, for a minute I didn't have another solo album in mind. I was producing a lot. And after I worked on Nels Klein's um, Lovers album, as we were talking about before, mm -hmm. I realized how much I love orchestrating and composing and conducting. And that by being in front of an orchestra, it actually focused and harnessed 
all of it into one thing. It was very distilled. Um, when I play a lot of instruments, it tends sometimes to be a little bit schizophrenic, which is maybe, sometimes it's magical, sometimes it's a little bit chaotic. When I'm conducting, there's a certain calmness. I can use the orchestra, whether it's seven, eight, nine people or 26. Um, it, it can be transcendent as long as the arrangements are strong and the material is strong. So the orchestra grew out of the album with Nels Klein. And it's just been a blast. I mean, people have said to me, this is a really interesting thing because there's so much of you in it. But by, and I will pick up the horn like Louis Prima or something, you know, it's some more dizzy in this <laughs> band at certain points. But there was a show we did in January where I had the horn right next to me and I was keeping an eye on the, on the set time. I didn't pick it up once. I was just, I, I let John Bailey blow or Frank Green or Philip Dizak and Donnie McCaslin. There were so many great musicians that I didn't need to solo. It was my structures and my, um, it was almost like a Lalo Schifrin. Mm. And it's so enjoyable. And there's such a future. I could do, uh, have a song list of, uh, of 50 songs besides my own compositions. There's doing a James Bond suite. There's doing, uh, you know, Frank Zappa. It's really, I feel like I've, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda said like when he wrote Hamilton, he felt like he, a mosquito hitting a, a vein. When I really committed to doing the orchestra live, I went, oh my God, I could do this for 40, 50 years. So, Very cool. Well, yeah. we hope you do it for 40 or 50 years and follow it each way. It's going well, to be great to see the, uh, the evolution of it. It's very cool. There is another element, which is uh, now being a father, I'm a little less, I'm still pretty self-involved, but I'm a little less self-involved. <laughs> And, and as I get older, the idea of being able to use whatever capital I've, I've gained in the music world to employ other people is exciting to me because I, I'm not a, a, an island. Mm -hmm. Like, we're all in this together. Uh, you know, putting success and money aside, a great joy is a, is a great day's work of that feeling of creating. Again, when I listen to Clifford Brown, uh, everything just kind of goes away. I go, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> and it's wonderful. When you're creating with people and you get that buzz, it's incredible. And if people don't have work and people aren't able to create, then it's, the buzz is going to go away. So the idea of me being able to have a touring group of nine, ten people, and then every now and then take the way Quincy did in the 70s, or Henry Mancini, or Lalo, or whatever, you know, um, to be able to employ 25 people, even if it means me getting a little bit less, that would be great. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of 10 to 20 years from now being in a position that someone says, would you be a musical director on a Broadway show? And having enough clout to say, I will, if we use a live band. And that's not out of disrespect to you, it's that I want you to understand the, the world at large here. That's something that, that has changed for me. Mm -hmm. That it's not just about me or, you know, uh, whatever. It's about something larger than that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a mistake that the orchestra, the intention is to employ a lot of people <laughs> and, and give artists, I can't, not hundreds, but to take people who's playing I love and just say, hey, you want, you know, Hear some work. Yeah, God bless. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so and appreciated it's, from the uh, well, from the, uh, all the musicians who get to work with you. 
Michael, it's, you've been so generous with your time today. I had a couple uh, questions just to ask you to wrap up. And, and uh, one is just, uh, you were talking about a project you're getting ready to produce, but just in general, what's what's on the docket for you coming up uh, for the rest of the year? I know you got the residency with Steely Dan out in Vegas. And, uh, yeah, and this, so it's, this is the end of February, mid-February now. In, April, in March, I'm going to uh, Paris to produce an album by Camille Berthaud, who's a very talented uh, young French singer. And uh, that'll be about two weeks. We'll record about maybe three weeks. We'll record eight days and then take a break and then mix. And then I uh, come back home and I'm going to, uh, we're doing more shows with Nels Klein and the uh, Lovers Orchestra and on the West Coast. And I conduct. I, I, again, same thing. I play on a couple songs, but I'm really just conducting. Mm. And uh, Nels is, uh, you know, featured on every song. It's his, his baby. So we'll do two of those shows. I go to the Steely Dan residency in Vegas. We do a couple shows on the days off. And then I come back and there is talk about um, starting, I have enough material arranged and some recorded for the Michael Lenhardt Orchestra album, but it look, I'm finding out more in the next couple of weeks whether I will spend some of May and June recording and mixing the debut album to be released in 2018. Wow. And along awesome. with that, there's some short films, the two or three short films that I'm scoring um, which are very exciting. You know, there's this, again, this balance of taking on too much, and yet when there's a lot of great stuff, how do you say no? And, and I don't want to take on so much that uh, I feel like I'm doing bad work, but it's a real balance. How do you, how do you make sure that there's enough work to survive? Also, being here in Manhattan, um, the city is increasingly more expensive, <laughs> which tends to dictate uh, how much you have to make. And, and this is, you know, David Byrne said that the cost of the city is pushing out a lot of the art, sure. which is another subject. But that's basically it, um, a bunch of playing. I spoke to another film director who has a fascinating hour-long movie that he asked me if I would score some of the music with my orchestra, and then we would perform it in August and September. So there are lots of interesting things going on. I would assume that a third of them won't happen, and if two-thirds do, cool. <laughs> yeah, so, good stuff. Yeah. Well, my last question to you, and, and you, you know, as we've said, you come from such an extraordinarily talented uh, family. Uh, your wife is an amazing singer, and it's been great to work with her over the years as well. But uh, your young son, he's seven and a half now, I'm guessing without going out on too much of a limb that he's going to be a very talented young man at whatever he uh, chooses to do. But tell me what you would say to him if uh, he gets to be a sophomore in high school and he comes to you and says, Dad, I, I want to be a musician. What would you say to him? If he said, I want to be a professional musician, that's what I want to do. Professional musician, yeah. And he was a sophomore, so we're saying he's 16. You could pick any, uh, but uh, well, right at that precipice it's, where it's, yeah. uh, you, make the, you make the plunge. I would say... It's very interesting. You want to go out to lunch and we'll talk. And let's talk about it. I mean, that's a major talk. Yeah. And I would probably have a little bit of a flow chart ready, <laughs> and maybe a little glass of white wine. But um, no, I would certainly listen. It's um, it's a tough one. I would never want to. I would never want to turn down um, or reject someone's enthusiasm for the arts. And at the same time, man, is it. It's a doozy. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anyone. I know some pretty successful people who people think are richer than crap. 
And once you get them on a, you know, uh, relaxed, they go, oh, yeah, people think I made this, but they, they took that. And people, uh, it's one thing to be busy, but this idea of who is really successful and how much they're making, it's difficult to make money in the arts. Doesn't mean it's not worth diving right in. I wouldn't change much um, if I had to do over again. I think it's, it's incredible. The world needs people creating and being musicians. I wish it was just a little easier. I don't know. Yeah, well said. And, and the majority of the shows that I have done as a leader, easily more than half I've lost money on. I'm fine with that, but that's the reality. Mm -hmm. It's like this phase of, of constant promotion, constant investing in your own thing, of knowing uh, I'm going to do this show, especially with the orchestra. There are nights when I have to write checks to the guys and women. And I've done the math. I know, you know, uh, even if the house is packed, it's a, it's a losing venture on this one, but it's worth the investment. So. I would listen. The answer is I would listen, but would, it would be a couple of conversations, I think. You know. <laughs> awesome. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for oh, being with us today. My awesome. Pleasure. So great. My Continued pleasure. success. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.